Hey everyone, I'm Jay Kapoor. I'm a founding partner of VSE Ventures, a venture capital fund that invests in startups and helps them with their storytelling and go to market. And you are listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. Yeah. My name is Abhay Dandekar, and I share conversations with talented and interesting individuals linked to the global Indian and South Asian community. It's informal and informative, adding insights to our evolving cultural expressions, where each person can proudly say, trust me, I know what I'm doing. Hi, everyone. On this episode of Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing, a conversation with venture capitalist, podcaster, and storytelling strategy expert, Jay Kapoor. Stay tuned. Okay, I've said it before and I'll say it again. Thank you so much for listening to this and sharing it with your friends and family, for sharing a kind review or rating, and for following us wherever you can on social media. So have you ever had a great idea that you're just super excited about? You probably have, and the initial spark is always really palpable. Naturally, since we're social and communal animals, we want to share our excitement with others to capture the energy of the idea and help fuel it even further. Now, if we translate this to the startup space, using effective and compelling storytelling to accelerate and solidify and scale an idea, or even the launch of a company, seems like a no-brainer. But one, of course, that takes curation, experience, and precision. So it was terrific to share a conversation recently with Jay Kapoor. Jay is a founding partner of VSC Ventures, a venture capital fund that invests in early-stage companies with the support of PR, go-to-market, and media strategy. Jay was born in Chandigarh, India, and emigrated with his family first to Kuwait, then to Canada, and then settling in New Jersey for the past many years. His through line of personal experiences includes beginning his career in media and entertainment, first as an investment banker, and more recently as an executive in corporate strategy with the National Football League, and then at Madison Square Garden. He also spearheaded seed investment at Launch Capital, investing in many unicorn companies in fintech and transportation. Now, maybe this is what he had in mind when, as a teenager, he served as a press box announcer for his high school football team. But the connecting of many personal and professional dots speaks to a well-developed empathy, and the sharpened use of story as a central driver of success speaks to Jay's passion and aim to perfect this craft. I have to say this is also evidenced by Jay's podcasting host duties on The Game Plan, a show that interviews professional athletes about their journeys and lessons after retirement, and Climb, featuring expert conversations about climate innovation. We caught up to chat and to get a brief window into Jay's world, and we started by talking about how storytelling has made him a better listener. It's a, it's a great question. You know, I, just for context, I guess I currently run a venture capital fund named VSE Ventures, where our focus is helping startups that we work with, with their storytelling, with their go-to-market. But I have kind of been in and around this world for a long time. And, you know, there, there are very, I think, clear ingredients to a good story. And I think there are very clear ingredients or, or recipes to, to helping these stories that uh, stand out or are memorable, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think for me, uh, the way that being in the world of storytelling, spending time in this ecosystem has, has made me a, a better listener is I try to pick up on those ingredients. I try to pick up on those aspects where, you know, uh, when we are evaluating a company, I'm listening for 
what are those hurdles that this founder had to overcome? You know, we, we think I, I grew up in you know, sort of the, the media world and uh, that's where I started my career. And even before that, I've just sort of been a, a huge fan of a film. Actually, one of the, the best classes I accidentally took in college was in screenwriting. And it had nothing to do with anything that I, you know, planned to do with my career. I was a finance major, right. but um, it just made me realize that, you know, the the hero's journey, the the sort of the little aspects that we see in every film that we love and enjoy that's memorable from, you know, Star Wars to Disney to whatever, has these same ingredients, this obstacle that has to be overcome, this massive insurmountable goal, this unshakable belief that you have that this is the right path and this is the goal. That carries over to a lot of the founders that we talk to who are trying to create something out of nothing. And yeah, the, the goal for them is not slaying the dragon. Maybe it's, you know, building a, a billion dollar company to IPO, but the unshakable vision, the obstacles they overcome, that's always there. So I feel like as a listener, that's what, what I'm listening for. And I think any good story has those, those same ingredients that um, when I hear it, I, I kind of know, okay, this is somebody I vibe with. Has it, has it compelled you? Because especially when you're not hearing those ingredients, there's an equal value and power to that. So you know, has it compelled you to just query more and find out, all right, hey, here's someone who maybe needs help with their storytelling a little bit more than you know, maybe I'd presume? I think there are certain archetypes of people that struggle with that storytelling. And, and I'll say, for me, it's, it's folks that you know, I think either come from industry and have been so deep in it that for them, you know, it's the, these acronyms are like breathing, right? It's, a, it's right. a second language to them. And I think they don't always realize that, you know, not everybody speaks it or not everybody understands it with the level of clarity that, that they do. Yeah. Um, and I think another one is, you know, folks that are really technical and really sort of in, into engineering and into product and they can build an amazing robot. But when you ask them to describe in a few words what it does, um, they they struggle with it because a few words is not enough. You know, they're almost you almost leave the elevator without knowing a thing that they just did. Yeah, and and you know, I would argue that the elevator pitch is um, archaic now yeah. because we live in this world of TikTok and Instagram Reels and YouTube Shorts and whatever. And I think you know, there's a term called the escalator pitch, which. Yeah. I'm in a mall, you're in a mall, I'm going down the escalator, you're going up it. You've got six seconds to tell me what it is you do and I have to remember it by the time I leave the mall. Ultimately, those kinds of stories come down to clarity and understanding what resonates with your audience. Right. And I think those archetypes of people that I mentioned that initially struggle, and I'm not saying that these folks can never become good storytellers, because I, I fundamentally believe that, that this is a skill that can be learned and sure. for some people, you know, they're, they're starting a little bit, you know, closer to the end zone and some people are starting a little bit further away, but this is a skill that can be learned. And so I think the reason they struggle is that, you know, that, that clarity and brevity is something that an audience, uh, a viewer, a listener, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, somebody who is here for your story is really searching for. Mm. And clarity and brevity ironically takes a long time to get right. You yeah. know, you have to keep workshopping it. And it's actually right. easier to write something longer than it is to write something shorter. And so I think from those aspects, when I'm listening for somebody and they're telling a very long story, 
but they're they're not hitting the milestones along the way that sort of checks in with the audience and says, are you are you buying what I'm you know selling? Right. Are you picking up what I'm putting down? Yeah. If that's not there, then that to me says, okay, this could be a really compelling company, but this yeah. is somebody that um, doesn't have those ingredients or building blocks yet to to really put together a, a compelling story. Let me let me ask you about the content of that then, right? So like you know you it, you have to perfect the craft of being brief and succinct yet powerful, and also the content is something to think about too. I mean, both have compelling value, but is there equal power to the story that is giving you a sense of the opposite, the fear, the anxiety, the sort of negative side of things, as much as there is a story of aspiration or opportunity or optimism? Well, if you look at the last 20 years of media, right, the stuff that has actually resonated with audiences, you know, news channels and even coming out of the pandemic, a lot of it has been about fear. Yeah. You know, the the 24-hour, I, I consider myself a sort of historian or, or, or you know, a history buff of, of the evolution of media. And if you look at what's happened in the sort of post-mobile era, but even before that, in the cable news era, yeah. the moment that we had 24-hour news channels worth of content to fill, it stopped being about inspiration and hope and those stories. And it started being about if it bleeds, it leads, right? And we've now applied that into the, the social media, social video, TikTok and YouTube and so on that you know people have about a three to five second attention span. And negative emotion often trumps positive emotion in a shorter period of time, right? You can shock somebody into paying attention yeah. just a little bit faster then you can, you know, excite them to stay longer. And sure. there's whole psychological papers written about that. Losses loom larger than gains. And, you know, behavioral psychology talks about how scaring somebody is easier than inspiring somebody. But to me, that inspiration lasts longer, right? You yeah. can scare somebody and they can watch a video and they can stick around for 30 seconds, but they might not stay with you as an audience for a lot longer um, then it just, you know, we could talk about like incentives, right? Because yeah. putting a video together on TikTok, all you're looking for is that 30 second view. Right. Um, but if you're looking to build trust with an audience, if you're looking to build relationship with an audience, then that positive emotion trumps negative emotion, at least as far as I've seen every time. How, how have you, I mean, given that, right? You just pretty elegantly explained how you have the optimism and the aspiration of a story is longer lasting. How is your own capacity to maybe leverage a story or a theme perhaps helped you in your own personal mission to synchronize perhaps with the professional mission of a group like VSC Ventures? So look, I, I think, you know, when we started fundraising um, for a fund, so, so um, you know, venture capital is a, a subset of this world of private equity, right? Public equity, people are investing in stocks and bonds and things that are publicly traded. Private equity can range from, you know, people buying uh, large companies, you know, small family-owned businesses that are scooped up by funds and you know rolled up, or in our world, investing in startups, right? And so for yeah. the folks that you know have followed maybe Silicon Valley or these other TV shows, that's kind of the world we live in. We look at startups, we evaluate their potential, and we invest in the ones that we think could become um, breakout hits. And yeah. generally, in the world of venture capital, um, you're wrong more than you're right, and yeah. that's I think a, a thing that you know coming from a traditional finance background, coming from a media background. I had to really sort of shift my mindset around, which is if I'm batting, you know, 
That yeah. is great. That's industry leading, right? Uh, and you're going to be wrong 70% of the time. And I, and I think that's sometimes difficult to grasp. But, you know, coming to to how it helped me sort of bridge my interest in story and my interest in, you know, c- building compelling narratives. The first thing you have to do before you can go and invest in startups is you have to go raise capital yourself. And mm-hmm. so we set out to raise a, a $20 million fund. And the first thing we had to do was go and convince investors that we were doing something different because mm-hmm. there's so many funds out there. There's so many places for smart, talented, successful people to put their money why would they do it with us, right? And sure. sure, you can always say, look, I've been investing for 10 years and look at my track record. And you know, my, my partner Vijay has been at this for 20 years and what he's been building and look, we got this. But that's not what, what sort of stays with somebody, right. right? Track record and sort of you know the stat sheet and the back of the baseball card is not what people remember. And so for us, it was really coming out and saying, how do we stand apart? And by the way, this is the same framework that I use for every startup that I'm evaluating or that post-investment that we are working with. Sure. And we looked at three things, positioning, messaging, and awareness. I said, okay, what does positioning mean? Well, how are you different? You know, what, what sandbox are you playing in that's different? And, and, you know, sometimes you may go after a big audacious goal, but today you have to position yourself as a N of one sure. in a category. Yeah. Tomorrow, you may be taking on Amazon, but if today you go out and say, well, I'm taking on Amazon, you'll get laughed out of a lot of rooms. Yeah. But if you say, hey, I'm just building this small thing in this part of the world, and I'm helping you know, moms with young kids, and that's yeah. my, I'm just going to own that ecosystem, and that's the first step to building a, a billion-dollar company, great. You you found your positioning, right? Yeah. The second bit of it is messaging. Okay, now that you know where you are in terms of positioning, you have to find a message that resonates with your audience, with your customer. Who is your audience? Who is your customer? Identifying them, identifying what they care about really matters. And then the last bit of it is awareness. Now that you have your positioning and your messaging, you got to get out to people and they've got to learn about you and they've got to be able to find you easily because we are so attention, you know, strapped today that if I don't understand what it is that you do and figure out why I care about it very quickly, I'm going to move on to the next thing. So yeah. that same framework we applied, you know, to ourselves and, and we're successful in, you know, going and raising our fund. Yeah. And, and you mentioned this idea of, first off, I feel like I just got a master class in, in this uh, uh, for a sec- <laughs> few seconds there, which is great. But, but on top of that, you know, there, there's competition for people's attention. There's competition for dollars. And so is the secret eventually to storytelling in any arena, right? In our personal lives and our professional lives and certainly in what you do, is it simply being or having a better story is the secret, um, the actual like, you know, quality of it. Is it the timing of it? Is it the, you know, specificity of it? Or is it the kind of absent luck that we might have based upon what the audience is doing at that time? I think when it comes to my specific professional realm, I would say that just having a good story is not enough, um, at least in the long term, right? But having a good story can alleviate some of the initial problems that startups might face. You know, namely, can you get customers? Can you hire great employees? Can you attract investors that wanna back your vision and be a part of what you're doing, right? Typically at this stage where we come in at the earliest stage, you're solving one of those three problems. And being a good storyteller can help you alleviate some of that. 
Your sure. customers will buy your vision maybe before your product is ready, before you have something that's really quite there, but they want to ride with you because they see where you're going. Yeah. Your employees will come work for you for dirt cheap because they believe their equity that you're giving them is going to be worth something. And they're ready to you know, delay gratification today to, to come build the future with you. And then lastly, look, uh, with investors, probably storytelling makes the biggest impact because you know, just beyond looking at, can this thing do what it says it can? I'm also looking at what is the future state of the world if this company succeeds? Mm. And so for that, you have to tell a good story because if I'm investing in you today, I'm, I'm going to be on your cap table. I'm riding with you for 10 years, right? Maybe longer. And I, you know, COVID made this really hard because a lot of the deals we were doing were over zoom, but yeah. in a pre COVID day, it would be sitting down with a founder you know, yeah. spending time with them, having lunch with them, going to their home, getting to know them to say, look, we're entering into a relationship that lasts longer than the average American marriage. Like yeah. we need to make sure that we like each other and we want to work together. And so, you know, I guess coming back to this idea of, is it all just storytelling? I would say no, right? I yeah. think your product has to be right. Your experience and expertise as a founder has to be there, as, a, as an entrepreneur has to be there. Um, you can't just gloss over all of that. Sure. Um, and some people have tried, right? Uh, you know, Elizabeth Holmes and Adam Newman and however many other folks have tried to substitute storytelling for actual product and expertise and yeah. they've, they've struggled for it. Yeah. Um, to put it, to put it gently, but if you do have those, those ingredients, um, then the, and, and you're competing with somebody else who has those ingredients, yeah. then all things being equal, the better storyteller will stand out. You're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. After a quick break, let's come back to our conversation with Jay Kapoor. Conversation. It's the antidote to apathy and the catalyst for relationships. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and I share conversations with global Indians and South Asians, so everyone can say, trust me, I know what I'm doing. New episodes weekly, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Prague Marate, president of 49ers Enterprises and EVP of Football Operations, and you're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. Welcome back to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. Let's rejoin our conversation now with venture capitalist Jay Kapoor. Let me ask you about you know your own story for a second. So help help me you know to sort of like think about this particular twist of things how how is the road from chandigarh to kuwait to canada then to jersey and new york if anything <laughs> built built empathy for you in in the kind of work that you do yeah you know i didn't realize it was happening as it was happening right some of these yeah. dots and connections only make sense when you when you look backwards but you know, from a very early age was exposed to a lot of different cultures, right? Um, I, you know, grew up in Chandigarh, still have a lot of family there, you know, grew up speaking the language and, and still spending, even when we were in Kuwait, a lot of my summers with my grandparents and my cousins, you know, back right. in India to then bring that experience to, you know, moving to North America and moving to Canada and coming to the US. In some ways, it was like a foot in both worlds, right? Yeah. And when you have that and, you know, you are able to, I think, see how 
different culturally how how you view things differently sure and you know it it, it builds a certain amount of i think open-mindedness right yeah. uh, tr trying new things trying new foods meeting people from new cultures going to their homes and you know learning how they live i think um it imbued a kind of curiosity right we, yeah. when i when i was living in kuwait you know our neighbors were Kuwaiti Muslim. Yeah. And, you know, our family grew up, you know, Punjabi Hindu. And so yeah. they're coming over to our home for Diwali. We're going to their house for Eid. And yeah. it just builds this level of sort of curiosity and openness. You know, my, my mom's, I think, best friend was, was Christian. And so we would go right. to church with them. And I think, you know, those kind of things where you sort of say, hey, there's something to be learned from everybody. Right. And I think applying that to, to what I do today. And again, right, it didn't I didn't realize it was happening when, as it was happening. Now that I kind of look back, it's like, yeah, you you see everybody as someone with a story worth hearing. And so even as I'm meeting a founder, you know, and I and I I kind of can tell within the first five to ten minutes of a conversation, yeah, this this gets me excited, right? You get the the, right. the goosebumps, the spidey sense over the back of your yeah. neck or whatever you want to call it. And sometimes that doesn't happen. Yeah. But I'm I think still in that curious mindset to sit there and and hear their story and sure. say, okay, maybe maybe the thing they're building right now isn't exactly what I thought it was, you know, when they pitched it over email. Yeah. But this person, this person has a story. They have a reason why they're doing this. Yeah. Okay, let me take the it's time to hear it. It's a growth opportunity for the next conversation. Yeah, and 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 maybe it's something that I'll, I'll learn about a area that I didn't know and I mm. can impart to them, hey, this, this really stood out to me, right? I, I may not be interested in, continuing this relationship from a business standpoint, but I yeah. can offer feedback and say, these three things you said, that resonated. Sure. And ultimately, you know, when, when anybody who's building a company, the first thing they're going to go do is get customer validation and customer feedback. Right. And if that customer can give them clear, hey, this resonated, this didn't. This got me excited, this didn't. It's only going to help them get better. And so for me, I think keeping that open mind and bringing that curiosity says, Hey, even if this is sort of the end of the road for our business relationship, I can try to create some value for you by just being open-hearted, open-minded, and, and just, you know, being a good listener to the story you're telling. Yeah, and it sounds like the value for you then becomes also the same thing, right? I just, I learned about a different story. It didn't necessarily, you know, a, a blossom into something, but, but clearly that kind of open-mindedness, curiosity, ability for you to actually see the world through a multiple different eyes has allowed you to actually develop some of those relationships. I'm curious then, then for you, and we were talking about this before we, we started, you know, the idea that you're an Indian American, a South Asian American, and how pervasive that is in the industry that you're, you're working in. But do you actually identify or even think of yourself as an Indian American venture capitalist? And for that matter, you know, kind of fill in the blank there, right? Do you consider yourself an Indian American husband and you're an American podcaster. How, how often or if at all, does that kind of, you know, precede your roles? I think it's an interesting and somewhat existential question. Um, I think it's hard to separate my cultural identity from sort of who <clears throat> I am and, and how I live, you know? Yeah. It's not sort of like, from the perspective of, oh, you know, every day I'm sort of made to to think about myself as an Indian American. But the the decisions I make, the, you know, values that that I come from, 
the values in which I'm building my firm and carrying sort of my relationships both professionally and any sort of people that I meet personally, um, I think are, are often instilled by the upbringing that I had as an Indian American. Sure. And so I think from from that aspect, right, you know, and, and like I mentioned, like growing up with my, you know, grandparents who came from West Punjab, which is now in Pakistan, yeah. uh, where they were born, you know, in the villages outside Lahore to then moving to Chandigarh. Like, yeah, there there is aspects of their story that still carry forward in how I view my identity. And, you know, living here in New York, which is such a metropolitan city, you, you find ways to, to connect with, you know, even from the, Anyone, the taxi driver right. that I was chatting in Punjabi with, and he happens to be from Pakistan and my yeah. family's from India, but we share a common language. Like it's, it's one of those things where I think it's just, it's a, it's just a way of being and it's just sort of yeah. how it informs my values. But I think it's not something that I sort of on a day-to-day -day basis say, you know, I am doing this because I'm an Indian American. I think right. it's, much more right. subconscious than that. And I and I wonder, I mean, I, I chose that that label, if you will, relatively arbitrarily, but you could insert like, you know, I'm 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 an immigrant. I'm a Carnegie Mellon grad. You know, like we we put our our sort of tribal monikers on in a variety of different ways. But in that yeah. way, I mean, you in your space, you also do work with a lot of South Asian Americans or South Asians yeah. or global Indians. Yeah. And, you know, to some degree, does that does that connection matter? Or is it again, you know, at some point you still are are relatively agnostic to these kinds of monikers? I think it does. And and I think um I find myself as an immigrant gravitating towards immigrant founders a lot. Yeah. And I think I don't know now that I'm sort of thinking about it, if it is just a function of seeing my parents, you know, coming to this country. I was ten or eleven, you know, when we when we moved from Kuwait to North America. But then even, you know, we were we were still immigrants before that, right? We were in, in, a, in, a, in a Middle Eastern country post-Gulf War and trying to find our way and find our community. Um, I think there's a, there's a couple of things that I, I take from that, which is one, you know, I tend to find that, that immigrant founders have a obsessiveness that, mm. you know, just I, I find more prevalent sometimes. And that's not to say non-immigrant founders don't, sure. but there's, there's a level of obsessiveness about what they're building that maybe just comes from this like, look at what I left behind. And, and oftentimes, yeah. you know, we talk about anything where it's like, my parents would have had a quote, much more comfortable life had they stayed, sure. but they had ambitions for what they wanted to do. And, and so they, they came to this country to do it. You see a lot of that with, with immigrant founders that are building really cool things where what they left behind wasn't, you know, hey, I, I, I left this sort of hard upbringing, other side of the tracks. It's like, actually, no, I could have had a great life staying in India or, or staying in Israel or whatever. But I, but I came here because this country gives me the opportunity to build a much bigger business than I maybe could have, you know, where I came from. It's so funny. You know, I, I had Trikant Datar, who's the dean of Harvard Business School, um, and I asked him almost the, the same question. And something he said was, you know, it, it is inevitably true that whether, whether it's you know, shared trauma or kind of the idea that you, you see yourself in somebody else, especially based upon like the barriers and the struggles and the challenges that they've gone through. There is that kind of unspoken empathy, if you will, that you understand mm -hmm. a little bit more of what they went through because of that immigrant mentality. And anyways, that, that I could see how that in some ways gra makes you gravitate towards others with kind of a similar story. I, I resonate with people that have stories of resilience 
because yeah. I think it's what I grew up around and I think it's it's sort of what I've seen and, and sort of built as a cornerstone of, of my own career. And I think when I when I hear immigrant founders sort of talk about, you know, hey, I, I had to go do this thing because of this visa situation. Right. But, you know, I still spent my nights and weekends building and iterating and meeting people. And, you know, I, it, it's, um, it's really this interesting thing. And I, I, I'm sorry, I forget who the quote is from. Yeah. But they said, you know, when you hear somebody with an accent, um, you know, a lot of people will, I don't know, mock it or, or belittle it. But, you know, it's a signal that somebody left a place where this wasn't their first language. Yeah. And they came to this country and they learned a second language and they learned it functionally enough that they're conversing with you. And that accent is a, is a signal of someone overcoming struggle. And it's yeah. a signal of resilience. And I, I really, that when I heard that, it really resonated with me because again, it, it reminds me of, you know, my parents and coming here and as your audience can sure. hear, I, I sort of have lost my accent over time. But, but, you know, when I, when I, when I see somebody with that struggle, when I see somebody with that resilience, it shows me, I think, the hallmark of what I think makes great, you know, founders and great entrepreneurs. And I, I don't want to just use founders as somebody who's like building a venture cap, you know, venture capital right. business. I mean, any entrepreneur, if you're opening yeah. a, a corner store, you got a bodega here in New York, you're yeah. an entrepreneur. That is a story of resilience because it is never just up and to the right. And that's the number one thing that I see. Um, founders that have seen resilience before, you know, had, have had to have resilience, have seen struggles, have had to overcome them. That to me, I vibe with that. And I sort of get sure. energized by those conversations really more than any others. What's the, uh, tell me, we're going to, we're going to riff on that resilience a mm -hmm. little bit. Tell me what's the resilience factor or the resilience accelerators that have been part of your life in mm -hmm. connecting that dot of being the press box and press box announcer for your high school football team to raising funds with highly strategic and discerning investors. Yeah. I think the through line of resilience for me, you know, came from understanding that really nothing that I, that I want to do is out of reach. If I'm willing to invest the, the time and energy to make it happen, right? Yeah. And and I sort of, we, we talked about this idea of obsessives. I think if there's ever been a through line of all the companies that I funded, because I funded companies from FinTech to construction to architecture to, you know, healthcare. Sure. It's that every single one of those people is obsessive. And I yeah. think the flip side of that is, if you're that kind of obsessive, you're you're usually also that level of resilient. Mm. And that, that I think was the, the biggest sort of, thing that I had to understand about myself, right? There, there was times that, you know, I was working in a corporate job, I was working in investment banking, and I would get down on myself because I'm like, God, this is not what I want to be doing. I don't draw energy from this. Yeah. And over time, I think what I realized was there were things that I wanted to do that I didn't understand how to do, that I didn't know. Right. And the unlock for me was realizing, okay, well then go do what everybody else did. Go learn it, right? Spend yeah. Spend the... Malcolm Gladwell, 10,000 hours or, or thereabouts. And that I think has, has been the, the biggest through line for me is that, okay, I, when I became a press box announcer for our high school football team, I did not watch a lot of football. Like I probably watched the Super Bowl, uh, you know, every so often I had maybe been to one or two of our high school's football games, but I had somebody who heard me speak in class. This was probably right after I hit puberty and my voice dropped a little bit. <laughs> they said, 
they said, hey, you've got a you've got a radio announcer voice, or maybe they they said you have a face for radio. I forget exactly how they put it, <laughs> right. but they said <laughs> they said, hey, we're looking for somebody. Do you want to come do it? Yeah. And I was like, yeah, yes. I don't know what I'm signing up for, but but yes, let's just say yes. See what happens. What's the worst that could happen? Sure. Well, what the worst that could happen was I I uh, I sat in the booth, and at the end of the third quarter, I was like, all right, well that's the score at the end of the game, and that's somebody it. was like. <laughs> This is not <laughs> hockey. There's one more quarter. Who the hell is in this booth? That's right. <laughs> and, you know, and uh, my first game was an abject disaster. Yeah. And I said, okay. So I went back and I, you know, YouTube was early days. I started finding clips of John Madden and clips of, you know, Al Michaels and, and all these other folks. And I was like, okay, that's, that's what play-by-play is. That's right. what press is. And I started watching game tape. Yeah. And as I started watching game tape, I fell in love with the sport. As I fell in love with the sport, I got better. And, you know, I'd say by the end of that season and in the second one, I, I felt confident enough. And it all came from just becoming an obsessive and putting in the time and energy to actually going and doing the work. You're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. After a quick break, let's come back to our conversation with Jay Kapoor. Stay tuned. Every story told is a lesson learned, and every lesson learned is a story waiting to be told. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and I share conversations with global Indians and South Asians so everyone can say, trust me, I know what I'm doing. New episodes weekly, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hi, I'm Lily Singh, and you're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. Hi there, I'm Abhay Dandekar, and you're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. Let's rejoin our conversation now with Jay Kapoor. Do those lessons that come from a story like that, from, you know, the iterations that you take, and for that matter, different arena, sports, entertainment, media, um, investment banking, why, why do those matter? What, what, what is it about those particular fields or those particular areas of interest and passion for you why does that matter to your success hmm. you know like any good story i think the the main character and we are all main characters of our own story right um they're they would not be who the who they are where we meet them in their story if it wasn't for the challenges or the sort of ups and downs that they had gone through. Yeah. And I, I, I think about that the same way as myself, right? I was laid off from my first job. You know, I, I yeah. thought I was doing a good job and um, the bank had a bad year and they cut 50% 50, 50 of the analyst class. Yeah. And, it, you know, I feel like reading some of the news about what's happening now in the financial sector, a little bit of a deja vu, right? Yeah. And that was a real, real sort of nadir. That was a real bottom point for me to sort of say, wow, my first job out of college, you know, sailed through my internship, was excited to come back and get an offer, enjoy the hell out of my senior year. And yeah. now I come and I'm, I'm, I'm facing a setback. Yeah. And that setback and coming out of it led me to a great job at the NFL. And yeah. then from there, I moved to another firm that, you know, I, I wasn't sort of happy with what I was doing and where I was at. And I quit. And my immigrant parents were like, oh my God, you're quitting a high paying job. And, you know, we came to this country to give you these opportunities. And what are you doing? And ultimately, I think 
what they saw in me and, and they sort of, I think my, my mom always said this. She was like, yeah, you're, you're never going to be happy just working for somebody else. Like you have to mm. have one hand on the steering wheel. I think, I think she recognizes, you know, even before sure. uh, anybody around me did probably even before I did, yeah. but realize that, you know, those experiences that I was going through were there to, to show me what I liked and what I didn't like. Were there to test me to say, hey, is this something that you want to do or what you don't want to do? And so those experiences, I think for anybody, you know, whatever you're going through right now, that experience is an important part of your story because it's showing you who you're going to be at the other side of it. And, and that to me, I think has, has always been a, a really important thing, not to run away from those, those parts of my, my experience, sure. but to say, hey, they're all a part of that journey. Those blends and those mixtures, do you gravitate towards intersectionality? And what I mean by that, you know, whether it's screenwriting and finance, whether it's the climate and tech or sports and business, storytelling and, and AI, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Yeah, do, do you tend to, to gravitate towards these kinds of kind of crossroads? You know, I mean, I've never heard it put that way. Um, I'm probably going to steal that from you. So I'm asking <laughs> for permission now. Um, but yeah, I think I do. I think there is a real um, novelty in intersectionality. And so at the top mm. of our conversation, we talked about positioning as, yeah. as something that's important to me, right? It's sort of the, the cornerstone of a good story. Why are you different? You know, what sets you apart? And so for me, I think the reason that, that intersectionality is so interesting is because there's very few people that you meet at that that intersection. Yeah. And there's very few people that can do what you're doing and that sets you apart. And I'll tell you the, the you know, you mentioned sports and business. You know, one of the things I did during COVID that um, I never realized would bloom into what it has, which, you know, uh, really, I think has has been a trajectory changer in my career. Um, I started a podcast where I started interviewing professional athletes about what they were doing off the field. Yeah. And in a way, you know, it was it was a little bit like I was kind of looking for that advice. So I said, hey, why don't you just come on the show and we'll share your story. And, you know, I knew I knew some of these folks from from having worked at the NFL and having worked yeah. at Madison Square Garden and had sort of met them through the ecosystem. But over time, I think realized like, wow, I, it's not just they're sharing their story. I'm actually learning from them because they're transitioning from sort of a very insular world in sports to doing big things in entrepreneurship or finance or, or whatever. Yeah. That's, that's kind of what I did. I came from this right. very niche world of media and entertainment and sports, and I'm making the same transition. And so it was, it was um, you know, kind of a, a mutual thing. And the scariest day was actually the day that like kind of everything shut down, right? We went into lockdown. Yeah. I had all these people that I was you know planning to interview. We had maybe done four or five episodes right. and I wouldn't get a single response back. And I'm like, yeah. oh my God, the show is going to die five episodes in. And then we waited a week. It was a very panicked week. And then my email started blowing up because all these people that I had cold reached out to, to say, Hey, three-time Olympic gold medalist, would you come on my show? NBA all-star, would you come on my show? They all kind of got home. They finished watching all of Tiger King and they said, (laughs) what do I do now? Right. And they, they looked through their email and okay, here's this guy they've never heard of putting together a show. Yeah. Why not? Let me come reminisce about, you know, how I got into the franchising business as a former athlete. And then it just snowballed. And we've done 75 episodes since. I mean, Olympic gold medalists, NBA champions, Super Bowl winners, so on and so forth. But the amazing thing for these people was they were not defined by just their athletic prowess. This right. is something that they did until they were 30, 31, 32. 
and now, you know, maybe they're in their forties or fifties and they've had a second act and yeah. they're, they're sharing that journey with me. And that was, I think, really inspiring for me to yeah. say, yeah, that intersection, that, that sports and business conversation, I'm uniquely positioned to have that. That's something that, that my corner that I can own and finding that and owning that corner, I think really became a, an inflection point for what I'm doing now. It's, it's almost as if like, you know, it's great when you can shepherd or actually visualize somebody else at a similar intersection, right? That yeah. they're actually um, taking that same route or for that matter, meeting you at a very similar route. And, you know, along with sort of, you know, the game plan or, or the climb, you know, with both of those podcasts, you know, I, I just like myself, I mean, you know, it's enjoyable. It's a, it's a lot of fun, but have you, have you found that there's some, you know, aha moments where that you've learned mm. about yourself in, in sort of taking and being a steward for, for both of these kind of conversation pieces? One of my favorite conversations that I had on the game plan that I think I still think about as I'm starting something new, starting something challenging uh, and and this is not a you know subtle plug for people to go listen to that episode, but but it was but I please do a, a by fantastic the way. one. <laughs> Apollo Ono, uh, the most yeah. decorated Winter Olympian in the U.S., uh, and he's now gone on to have a successful career as an investor and and you know many other things. You know, he talked about this idea of that moment of getting on the podium, and you know having everybody adoring you and cheering for you, and you're at the pinnacle of your sport. And then he mentioned that it lasted 30 seconds. Right. And then you get off the podium and you go in the locker room and you go, that was it. That's it. That's it. Right. I worked four years for, for that. Yeah. And it, you'd be surprised how often that same idea came up with a lot of my guests sure. on the game plan where the ones that maybe started out focused on achieving whatever the pinnacle was in their mm. career, in their sport, felt a little bit hollow after. Sure. And, you know, when, when that high kind of wore off, there was a letdown and a come down. Yeah. And hearing, I think, Apollo talk about, you know, go after the challenging things that you're doing, but recognize that you have to find joy in the journey along the way. And I think for me, you know, tackling this thing, leaving a, a career, working at another fund where, you know, all of the, the admin and stuff was taken care of. And, and all I had to do was go and look at great companies to yeah. now building my own firm. And, and, you know, that's any entrepreneur that's listening will, will realize how much it's of your work thing. you're just doing laying foundation sure. as opposed to doing the thing that, you know, you were going to be doing, but learning to love that and yeah. learning to say, you know, I, I get to do that because I'm, I'm finally building something of my own. I'm finally building something that, that I get to have a hand in shaping. I love how you put that because I think recognizing the joy in the journey perhaps makes that podium feel a little bit less empty and, and lonely, especially after you know there's no one necessarily left watching you. I want to finish on one thought here, and that is in some ways kind of reverse engineering success. And how do you think about that? So... I'm curious in your eyes, what does an unsuccessful venture capitalist look like? Mm. And, and for that matter, how do you poise yourself to avoid being one? Look, there's a lot of different ways to success in this business. I think there is one clear one that will lead to somebody being unsuccessful. And I think it is 
lacking clarity and conviction. Mm. It is, there are very easy ways that you can invest in startups. You can yeah. find somebody who you think has a great name and a great brand, and you can hitch your wagon to them. And effectively, you can become an index fund to what they're doing, right? right? But what you're missing is your own conviction and your own clarity and your own research and your own understanding. And for me, I think where I try to avoid this, say, look, we, we still co-invest with great names. We still yeah. you know, invest alongside people that have been doing this for a while. But that is never an excuse for me to not go and build my own understanding and you yeah. know do my own customer research and go and call industry experts and just drafting off of somebody else's conviction i think to me in the long term is a surefire way of being unsuccessful and a corollary to that is i think realizing that most people are built for immediate gratification mm. most people and for me, I think realizing that to be successful in this business means delaying that, right? Sure. Being ready for that. Because entrepreneurs delay their gratification. And if you are not aligned with them, then you're going to be found out very quickly. And yeah. so keeping a long-term mindset, reminding those around me, reminding my investors, right? We're, we're in a market right now where not everything is up and to the right. Reminding yeah. people, hey, we are we are in this together for eight to ten years. This yeah. is one part of the the bottom that you know allows us to sort of get to that next part of the top. And keeping that in mind, mm -hmm. as opposed to I think the investors that maybe chase the the quick wins and the quick headlines and sort of the the, the quick returns. Yeah, sure. There's some people that make really good money chasing yeah. these sort of quick things. And then there's a lot of people that lose a lot of money. And so at the end of the day, my success metric is returning investment dollars for my investors, making sure that they have a good return because that's why they're behind us. But yeah. then the second part of that is doing right by the companies we invest in along the way, because yeah. I'm always playing the long-term game. And you know, somebody we back today, when they start their second company, we want to be the, the first people they call. And really looking at this as a long-term business and a long-term relationship is yeah. the path to success. So uh, the, the inverse of that, as you've requested, <laughs> that, I, that I think about is, um, you know, people that don't, don't build their own conviction and people that are trying to, to optimize for quick wins as opposed to the longer journey. Well, clearly people are compelled to stay and grow with you in the long term. Jay, thank you so much for, for joining us. What a treat to have a conversation with you. And, and I hope we can do it again in the future. I hope so too, Abe. This was really wonderful. I, I, you've prompted me to think about my own journey and my own intersectionality in a way that uh, I, I have not had a chance to before. So I, I really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Jay. And a hearty congratulations to both you and your wife on the next chapter of your own story as new parents. And now whether you're parenting or childing, wherever you are, hope you're practicing random acts of kindness with each other and your surroundings. Also, it's high, high time for Charles and Camilla to just give it back. Till next time, I'm Abhay Dandekar.